Welcome to episode 134 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about all things written to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. And I'm Kelly. How are you, Dermot? Very good, thank you. Very good. We made it to December of 2023. We're about to round out our year here at Blooms and Barnacles, and I'd say we've got a very long episode in store. Dermot, you remember when we did all those episodes about Proteus? I've blacked it out. Yeah, I do actually. No, I do. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they're in there. Yep. Yeah, so th- this is going to be a return to form for us for um, Proteus and Stephen Dedalus' brain. Oh, good. Everyone's favorite. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, honestly, we get a lot of compliments on those episodes. Okay. So it's at the hardest. Um, I'm digging. Uh, second, so second question for you. Have you ever read The Divine Comedy? I did. I read it as a oh, precocious really? 15 or 16 year old. Got a copy from the Arklo Library. Mm-hmm. But it was not in the original Italian. Okay. And I could tell that you're an Italian speaker because you say mm-hmm. Italian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I I did I read it around the same age, but we were required to for our world literature class I had to take mm. in high school. So we did not also did not have to read it in the original Italian. And we just read the Inferno because I think Mrs. Storr, who was my freshman English teacher, she's no longer with us, but was a very, very good English teacher, said that the Purgatorio and the Paradiso were too boring. So mm. we just read the fun yeah. parts. Yeah, that's good. Good. <laughs> Like Milton so, too, everyone mm. reads the hell bit. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a subject that I'm kind of interested in because mm-hmm. I use Gustave Doré as a reference mm-hmm. material a lot. And he, the same thing, like his illustrations of hell are fantastic and his illustrations of heaven are crap. Mm-hmm. And there's only like one piece of artwork that's ever done heaven justice and that's the michael powell pressburger mm-hmm. movie a matter of life and death which mm-hmm. is known as stairway ah. to heaven in the u.s the american title because the distributors said that um, the american audience wouldn't go to a movie if it had death in the title mm. and it's really eerie and mm-hmm. interesting and you go oh, that would be kind of interesting to explore that place mm-hmm. and it was done in 1946 or 47 when england was bankrupt so yep. incredible achievement art- artistically that's the one um where the real world is in color but the fantasy world is in black and white. It's right. like a reverse Wizard of Oz yes. because the real world's where it's at. And the Vim Vinders did the same thing with Wings of Desire. The mm. angels are monochrome. Humans have color because humans have something that the other life does not. All right. Yeah. Well, we are already good and well off track. You uh, mentioned Gustave Doré, mm-hmm. whose artwork also greatly inspired me when I was writing this. And Dermot did some artwork for this episode. If this is your first time joining us, you picked a hell of an episode because this one is dense. But Dermot, who is not dense, did some lovely artwork for this and all of our episodes. And I'd like him to talk about the uh, mm. illustration you've done. Yeah, it's the uh, Francesca de Rimini part of the Inferno, mm-hmm. isn't yeah. it? And she and her lover had an adulterous relationship and they get punished for all time by being whirled around in a, a maelstrom in the second circle of hell. Also put to music by Tchaikovsky in oh, uh, an overture. That would be a great outro, how I, mu- intro, outro for us. Yeah, which is how I know that. And it's very good. I don't like Tchaikovsky, but I like no. the term Francesca. You don't like someone who appreciates the orchestral use of cannons? Mm, that's okay. But I just don't like... Mm, it's like mm. Bits mm. of them I like, but not that as a whole. Too many smeary opera. The ballet. <laughs> ballet like, things. Like, it's mm. a, a young... A young um, musician in school i was very disappointed that we used timpani drums for the 1812 overture rather than uh cannons you could have gotten people where you live to bring at least some sort of firearms you know it was it was it was post columbine and everybody was really weird about cannons in high school gone mad yeah (laughs) shouldn't laugh columbine's not funny but um shooting cannons in a high school auditorium is funny in my mind yeah dermot took one of the gustave de i believe they were 
etchings um, and put his own very cartoony Francesco Dora did so much, so much work. He must have had a studio. There's no way that one man did all that. And I mm. think you can see different artists' signatures and stuff. I have you ever like done? Disney. Have you ever done any etching? I have, and there's no way yeah. one person did all this. Okay, yeah, I was no going to say he probably did the fun bits, yeah. and then all the writhing um, naked people were. Oh, I'd say he was like an intern. sketching it out, and a lot of people were doing the hack 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 yeah. and metal. Yeah, okay. did it once, never again. All right. Well, a little bit of business before we get back into it. Mm. Uh, just a few shout outs. Thank you so much to everyone who's donated to us via PayPal. Just had a couple new Patreon supporters and everyone who supported this year. December will close out our first year of Patreon. And it's really been a blessing to have your donations this year. It's allowed us to do some fun stuff, uh, which includes some live shows and a lot of bonus content that I would have been hard to justify without the assistance and also just having a reason to do off-topic episodes, which are really fun. Well, let me say a little bit about our Patreon. If you'd like to support us, it's a great way to do it. You can go to our page at patreon.com slash barnaclecast, and you can subscribe for a small monthly fee, and you get all of our episodes a couple days early. You have access to a video version, and of course, that monthly bonus episode. And our December bonus is going to be on the topic of the novel At Swim to Birds by Flann O'Brien, a novel so heavily influenced by Ulysses, it's mentioned on the back cover of the book. <laughs> So, um, no, Flann O'Brien, of course, if you're familiar with his work at all, was a lover of Joyce and I believe one of the men drunkenly urinating on the Martello Tower and those wonderful black and white videos of the first Bloomsday in the, the 1950s. So that's uh, how we want to round out the year. Um, I'm kind of still working on it. I've got a couple of really good guests, so it might end up being a two-parter. You know, a couple of good interviews lined up, but just given the nature of it, I'm going to be recording them later than I like, so there's a small chance that it might get pushed into early January. So if you're on the Patreon, I'll give you a note about it, the actual ETA for these episodes, but I think they're going to be really, really good. So go to your library or dust off your own copy and read up on those ahead of time. If you haven't read Flat O'Brien, I think any enjoyers of Ulysses and Joyce more broadly would also enjoy his work. So you can find all of that at patreon.com slash barnaclecast, or if you go to our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. You can find all that information right on the front page. And if you'd like to keep up with it, I also mention it all on our socials, which you can find us at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Blue Sky. And if that doesn't float your boat, you can sign up for our free monthly newsletter, which is available at our website. So those are all great ways to support us and leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or one of the many others. And if we showed up on your Spotify wrapped, please share it with me on social media. I'd love to to see it. That's fun for us. So should we get into this week's text? So we are working our way through Ulysses' seventh episode, Aeolus, mm-hmm. and the text today is going to be taken from pages 137 through 138 and my copy of Ulysses, which is the 1990 Vintage International Edition. There she is in all her glory, looking very dog-eared. And Dermot's going to read the first headline section here, which is a bit long, but... Clever. Very. Clever, Lenahan said. Very. Gave it to them on a hot plate, Miles Crawford said. The whole bloody history. Nightmare from which you will never awake. I saw it, the editor said proudly. I was present. Dick Adams, the best-hearted bloody corkman the Lord ever put the breath of life in, and myself. Lenahan bowed to a shape of air, announcing, 
Madam, I'm Adam, and able was I ere I saw Elba. History, Miles Crawford cried. The old woman of Princess Street was there first. There was weeping and gnashing of teeth over that, out of an advertisement. Gregor Gray made the design for it. That gave him the leg up. Then Paddy Hooper worked Taypay, who took him on the star. Now he's got in with Blumenfeld. That's press. That's talent. Pyatt. He was all their daddies. The father of scare journalism, Lenahan confirmed, and the brother-in-law of Chris Callanan. Hello, are you there? Yes, he's here still. Come across yourself. Where do you find a pressman like that now, eh? The editor cried. He flung the pages down. Damn clever. Oh, I'd read that one again. Clam Dever, Lenahan <laughs> said to Mr. Amadden Burke. Very smart, Mr. Amadden Burke said. Professor McHugh came from the inner office. Talking about the Invincibles, he said. Did you see that some hawkers were up there before the recorder? Oh, yes, J.J. Malloy said eagerly. Lady Dudley was walking home through the park to see all the trees that were blown down by that cyclone last year and thought she'd buy a view of Dublin. And it turned out to be a commemoration postcard of Joe Brady or Number One or Skin the Goat. Right outside the Vice Regal Lodge. Imagine. They're only in the hook and eye department, Miles Crawford said. Psh. Press in the bar. Where have you a man now at the bar like those fellows? Like Whiteside? Like Isaac Butt? Like Silver-Tongued O'Hagan? Eh? Bloody nonsense. Psh. Only in the halfpenny place. His mouth continued to twitch on speaking in nervous curls of disdain. Would anyone wish that mouth for her kiss? How do you know? Why did you write it then? Do you have any thoughts? Anything that jumps out at you? I'm, I'm assuming there's like overlapping like conversations going on, mm-hmm. which makes it kind of difficult. It's like a, the, the the room is just chattering and yeah. there's people talking across each other. Do you remember what the section just before this was about? The Aeolus stuff, the wind, um, the... Um, ree, ree, ree. Doing like a horror movie sound effect and oh, stabbing remind me the invincibles oh yeah the stabby men yeah and uh <laughs> ignatius gallagher's brilliant coffee ad method of transmitting information about the yeah, getaway route the code yeah well, allegedly anyway. Alleg- yeah. allegedly allegedly yeah yeah there's a lot of names in this which can make it snarly but they're mainly famous journalists from that era crawford mentions the old woman of princess street do you know what that is no. Where Princess Street is. No. It's basically an alley that runs just south of the general post office, the GPO. Mm-hmm. And it is where the Freeman's Journal used to be headquartered. So okay. the old woman of Princess Street would be okay. the Freeman's Journal. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, like the Grey Lady yeah. of the New York Times. And that's where the Irish Independent would have had their offices. I think, mm-hmm. if I remember right, in the 80s, mm-hmm. they've already moved them since. Abel was I, ere I sell Elba as a palindrome. It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's Lenahan being cute and clever yeah. with his limericks and, and Madam, riddles. I, and... Madam is also a palindrome. So he's mm-hmm. just doing a lot of wordplay. I think he's kind of being annoying hmm, yeah were you saying he he uh tripped you up on the the clam dever there yeah i will leave that misreading in because <laughs> it should be otherwise it'll look mean because i was laughing at yeah. and then i really do enjoy this story who knows if it's true of lady dudley going to buy a postcard view of dublin and she accidentally buys a commemorative postcard of the Inv- invincibles outside the vice regal lodge mm-hmm. And then uh, this last little bit here, I do want to highlight his mouth continued to twitch unspeaking and nervous curls of disdain. That's Miles Crawford. And then this next line, would anyone wish that mouth for her kiss? How do you know? Why did you write it then? That's Stephen thinking about his vampire poem, which we aren't going to cover right now, but we will cover in the next section. So that's... And so the previous line, the history of the nightmare from which we'll never awake, mm-hmm. that's Stephen's thoughts that's as well. That's Stephen's thoughts as well. Nightmare from which you will never awake. Also pertinent 
pertinent. Yeah, because the, he's again found a room full of doddering old men who love to celebrate the greatness of history. Mm-hmm. But to him, history is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. That he's, you know, thoroughly entangled in against his will. Mm-hmm. So, do you have any other thoughts about this? I don't think anything else yeah. jumps out at me that you won't pull to ribbons. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, I read through this and I thought, there's not a whole lot to say here. It's, look, you can dig into anything, but I think there's a, it's mm-hmm. a lot of surface stuff here. It seems difficult with the overlapping dialogue and the names, but what I'd like to do here is take a slight detour because I wrote, when I when I did the, the research for this episode, I wrote four profiles of four of the men from the office and who they were in real life. And we've got to cover four of them already, which are Miles Crawford and Lenahan and J.J. O'Malloy. And the one that's remained is Professor McHugh. And I think by far it had the most interesting real-life biography. But he was just hard to fit in because the areas I felt would be more organic to stick him in. There was something that really needed a lot of explication there. Mm -hmm. Because this passage doesn't, I would like to use it as an opportunity to tell you the story of who the real-life Professor McHugh was. Are you down? Yeah. All right. Professor McHugh is modeled on Hugh McNeil. So I like to imagine that his name is Neil McHugh. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think he's ever called that, but that is my head canon. Hugh McNeil was a once promising academic whose career had fizzled out by the early 1900s. So he's a might have been like a lot of these other guys where something went terribly wrong. McNeil is often remembered by Joyce commentators as brilliant, but very lazy. The story goes that he was a former scholar who had never quite attained the level of professor, but everyone called him professor anyway, kind of like Major Tweedy, who we, don't th- who we think was probably a drum major mm-hmm. but people just called him the major right molly molly bloom's father the real mcneil haunted the offices of the evening telegraph and later the irish times though he never worked for either he would show up early with a newspaper and snacks in hand to read and hang out for the day biscuit biscuitsfully chastising the actual workers if they showed up late but this is not the whole story mm. biscuitfully he was torturing people with that word. I it's a great word he though. He knew it would be hard to say. <laughs> I think he thought it would be funny to read. <laughs> so anyway, uh Hugh McNeil living my best life. Mm. Basically showing up somewhere where you can just read and eat and be obnoxious and yeah. effectively do nothing. Please subscribe to the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Joyce met McNeil during his nineteen oh nine visits to the Evening Telegraph office, which we discussed in the early kind of setting the stage episodes for Eolus. It seems likely that Joyce was probably aware of McNeil prior to this. Joyce attended University College Dublin during the years that McNeil was employed there, and many people in Joyce's social circle seem to have known McNeil in some capacity. These include John F. Byrne, who was the model for Cranley and resident at 7 Eccles Street in real life, uh, who described McNeil as erratic, constantly Teen Curran, who also worked at UCD and was an early supporter of Joyce's literary ambitions, knew McNeil as well. Oliver Sinjin Gogarty, the model for Buck Mulligan, also wrote that he knew McNeil. Buck Mulligan certainly did, as Stephen recalls earlier in Eolus, uh, in a little section that I didn't say anything about. <laughs> When we read it, but Stephen recalls that Mulligan had said of McHugh, 
quote, in mourning for Sallust, comparing him to an eminent but corrupt Roman historian. On the website, James Joyce Online Notes, which is a fantastic free Joyce resource, scholar John Simpson wrote, a four-part deep dive into McNeil's life that is well worth your time if you're at all interested in his story. What we know of McNeil is that he studied classics as a student at University College Dublin or UCD, and then went on to work there as what they called at that time a tutor, but his job would have been more akin to I think like an an evening lecture, an adjunct lecture than what we think of as a a tutor nowadays. Richard Ellman in his famous biography of James Joyce said that McNeil was never a professor, but that isn't strictly accurate. McNeil held a variety of positions in higher education prior to his decline. Basically what I'm saying is I think it's fair to call him a professor and Simpson points out that the university college list included him on it as Professor McNeil, though he was never listed in Tom's directory among the professors at UCD. So uh, it depends on your source, but I think it's okay to call him professor. I don't think that was totally stolen valor like Major Tweedy. Additionally, in early drafts of Aeolus, Joyce did not refer to him as a professor, but just called him Old McHugh. So there's some muddling there. He did have an academic background. McNeil never worked strictly as a journalist, but he did make some important journalistic contributions. So McNeil was known in that time as a very skillful chess player. And later in life, he wrote a a regular chess column for the Irish Times. While McNeil's chess column did not coincide with Joyce's 1909 visit to Dublin, McNeil was, like I said, known for his impressive chess skills and could often be seen taking in a game at the Dublin Bread Company or DBC. There's an unrelated reference in the Lestragonians episode that says drop into the DBC probably for his coffee play chess there in reference to John Howard Parnell but we can imagine McHugh is up there too with his frayed cuffs and biscuit crumbs in his beard. John F. Byrne, Joyce's friend, supposed that the reason McHugh didn't share this talent for chess with McNeil is that Joyce had absolutely no interest in chess and didn't think it was worth including. One man's opinion. McNeil's academic career never really took off. By the end of the first decade of the 20th century, he didn't seem to be working as a professor or tutor or of any sort. During these years, his financial woes began to mount. It's not really clear why, since it seems that he was considered a brilliant scholar. I don't think it's accurate just to say he was lazy. I think that we're being lazy if we just see his professional shortcomings as laziness. And this is my suspicion that Byrne's description of his erratic personality probably gives us a real hint to what was going on. He seemed very rough around the edges, both in appearance and demeanor, something that comes through in the character of McHugh. McNeil lacked the sartorial panache of some of the other men and was often sloppily dressed. And there are a couple examples in Aeolus. These are descriptions of Professor McHugh. An instant after a hoarse bark of laughter burst over Professor McHugh's unshaven, black, spectacled face, he extended elocutionary arms from frayed, stained shirt cuffs. Yeah, I think he's he's described too as holding up two quiet claws. Mm. So I imagine he has like Howard Hughes, long, untrimmed fingernails, and seems kind of eccentric. Obviously, very intelligent, well versed in the classics. But if you look a little closer, you kind of you can tell something's not quite right. Mm. And I I think it's probably for mental health reasons. While a professor might be able to get away with being less than fashionable, if his personality or his mental health is equally unkempt. Uh, it might be harder to justify for an employer. That is my suspicion of what 
happened. Mm. McHugh is often described as gruff and pompous throughout Aeolus. There is a one scene where he gets physically rough with a naughty newsie where he kind of grabs a boy by the scruff and throws him out in the hallway. Mm. You know, imagine if he had taken this tone with a wayward university pupil whose father was a, a well-known member of society, or maybe he in disagreements with his superiors at the university, you know, he took a tone. You could really see how UCD might have thought he wasn't worth the trouble. Um, there's a hint in Aeolus that McHugh was a drinker, the downfall of so many of the other men in this episode. Um, in Lenehan's Limerick that we read in the last Blooms and Barnacles episode, he uh, quipped that McHugh, um, as he mostly sees double to wear them why trouble, referencing his big Coke bottle glasses, insinuating that McHugh's a drinker, which most of the men are, so why not McHugh? as well. Regardless of any of this, starting in around 1903, McNeil regularly wrote to his family members asking for loans to ease his mounting debts. His situation grew so dire that he spent part of 1913 in the debtor's prison at Mountjoy. By the 1930s, he seems to have been completely destitute, still haunting the Irish Times offices and living on buns and tea from Bewley's provided by sympathetic journalists. He seems to have been a fixture of the office and they even tolerated him sleeping over in the office. He is also rumored to have slept in telephone boxes during that period and is recorded as having died in a workhouse in the mid-1930s. Mm. So it's a very sad end. There doesn't seem to be one clearly documented reason for McNeil's slide into poverty. Drink could easily have been the culprit, but outside of Lenahan's limerick, at least in Ulysses, we don't have any evidence. I wonder if, like I said, McNeil did suffer from some kind of mental illness in a time before society recognized and treated such things. This is all just speculation on my part. What is clear is that McNeil was well-liked by those that knew him. A professor of McNeil's is quoted in um, Vivian Igo's Real People of James Joyce's Ulysses in her entry on McNeil. He did not care much for getting in the world. Indeed, his quixotic disinterestedness was the despair of his friends. It seems as though on principle he acted in opposition to his interests. Such men are rare and are therefore the more attractive. Just a quick like geographical note, mm -hmm. like um, if anyone's reading this, like particularly people from not from Dublin, you've mm -hmm. come to Dublin, you know where Bewley's is. There was another Bewley's yeah. since closed. It's from, Westmoreland. Westmoreland Street. Yeah. So. And you can still see the Bewley's mosaic mm -hmm. on the ground. So yeah. sadly, that's now gone. I, I do mm -hmm. remember them being open as late as the 80s when I was mm -hmm. in Dublin, I think. But yeah, that would be probably where his buns were coming from, unless there was yet another branch that was open. I would have been at Bewley's, I think, uh, yeah. which is about a block closer to block closer where the, to the offices office. would have been. Yeah, because so. it would be like if you have yeah. a lunch break, like taking that extra block mm -hmm. or two would have been across the streets with trams. Or I imagine they're stopping in to get their own morning yeah. coffee or whatever and yeah. just picking up something it's for It's no him. distance at all. You're crossing the bridge and you're practically there. Yeah. yeah. I find something heartwarming about the people kind of looking after him in his decline. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he did still end up in the workhouse eventually, which is just a horrible way to end your life. Yeah. But it seems like some of the people who knew him took care of him as best he could. But. There used to be a man called Coppers back in the 80s when I mm -hmm. stayed with my Uncle Liam in Lower Pembroke Street. And he would just shuffle up and down the street going, Coppers, Coppers. And I was terrified. Mm -hmm. of, I mentioned it before, I'm sure. But anyway, I met Liam like 10 years later and I said, whatever happened to Coppers? And he said, oh, some good Christian woman took pity on mm -hmm. him and took him in. 
so he had a happier story but like it's a crapshoot he could have easily frozen to death on mm-hmm. the street you know it's just it's one of those you, know, you got this, people who care for you though even though they're there, there's just no institutional support it's mm. it's a lot to take on for yeah. non-family members and even family members because it seems like his family didn't look after him his trajectory is pretty similar to another Joycean person we haven't talked about on the podcast but you can find our blog post about him whose life was really well researched by John Simpson um, which is Cashel Boyle O'Connor Fitzmaurice Tisdall Farrell or in Demion. We have a blog post about him and uh, you can find that at bloomsandbarnacles.com who was the real Cashel Boyle O'Connor Fitzmaurice Tisdall Farrell. So before we go into this next bit, I'm going to read you once more the very end of this passage. His mouth continued to twitch and speaking in nervous curls of disdain. So that's Miles Crawford. Would anyone wish that mouth for her kiss? How do you know? Why did you write it then? And that's Stephen's internal monologue. Thinking about his vampire poem. Do you remember Stephen's vampire poem? Yeah, he's making fun of Douglas Hyde, isn't he? Is it the same one or is it a different one? Yeah, don't don't spoil my next... <clears throat> five pages of notes ask me <laughs> yeah I needed a good job <laughs> see how little you think of me expecting to go I don't oh, no, I no. don't think little of you. I forget I... well most times I do forget so yeah a lot of stuff anyway rhymes and reasons mouth south is the mouth south some way or is the south a mouth must be some south pout out shout drought rhymes two men dressed the same looking the same two by two that tua pace Che parla ti peace, mentre che il vento cumfa si tace. He saw them three by three, approaching girls in green, in rose, and russet, entwining per layer perso, in mauve, in purple, quella pacifica oria fiamma, gold of ori flame, di rimirar fe piu ardenti. But I, old men, penitent, leaden footed, under dark neath the night, mouth south, tomb, womb. Speak up for yourself, Mr. Madden Burke said. How how is my Italian now? Did you, I do good? Look, I will I will say going into this, neither of us are Italian speakers. I know basically the the rules of how to pronounce it, but I we do not speak Italian, and mm-hmm. I think Dermot did. Okay. Some of my best friends are Italian. Okay. So you can't call me anti. You got a lot of Italian friends, is what you're saying? I do have some. Yeah, yeah you yeah. he he does. He does have Italian friends. Yeah. <laughs> I would say too one thing I'm teaching you know English students in various parts of Ireland is I think the people who love Ireland most have always been Italian students hmm. so some of the folks who are here for a long time they're just like oh god so cl- cloudy and gloomy but I've seen I've seen young Italian people shed tears because they had to leave oh. so I, there's so there's some cosmic resonance there between the Italians and the Irish I hmm. couldn't couldn't say anything more about it than that so anyway, I think he did a good job, and I will also try to do an okay job. Dermot now is going to give his thoughts on this. Uh, um, <laughs> you can leave it at that so, if you want. <laughs> so he's still running rhymes through his head, yep. working on the vampire. This is poem. all Stephen. And then I'm assuming that's Dante. Yep. Now, when he says he saw them three by three approaching girls, green rose and roasted, I have no idea what's going on mm-hmm. here. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, old Madden Burke is clearly like interjecting yes. between his thoughts at the end there. Yes. Well, that, that, yeah. No, this is a part I've read with a lot of different Ulysses reading groups. You kind of read it and like, hmm, and you just keep going. (laughs) 
yeah, it, it's, uh, like I said, this will be a callback to our Proteus episodes. Now we're going to go through this line by line and we're going to figure out what it means. We're back in Stephen Dedalus mind and that's a, a difficult place to be buffeted by the winds of intellectual. It's a, it's a mini Proteus. It is a mini Proteus. I okay. think that's fair to say. Yeah. Here we are in the newsroom. Stephen Dedalus once again finds himself ensnared in the nets of crusty old men. While the older men in the newsroom encourage Stephen's writerly gifts, as we saw in previous episodes, they offer the young artist no true wisdom. As per usual, Stephen loses himself in an intellectual reverie amidst their banter in this section. Headline, Rhymes and Reasons. Let's start by looking at the first line. Uh, mouth, south. Is the mouth south some way? Or the south a mouth? Must be some. South, pout, out, shout. And I believe that is Drought. drought. Yeah, which is a great word because in this spelling, it looks like mouth, but sounds like shout. Back in Sandy Mount Strand, back in Proteus, Stephen had torn a corner from Mr. Deasy's foot and mouth disease letter um, to scribble a few lines of his vampire poem that we've mentioned. We go into depth on that in uh, episode 51 of Blooms and Barnacles called Omnis Caro Ad Tewenit. So if you'd like to hear more about the poem specifically, we'll get a little bit into it here, but there's a further dissection back there. Crawford, when he receives the letter, as we saw earlier in Aeolus, notices that the paper is torn and suspects Deezy's trademark temper. And he said, that old pelters who tore it. Was he short taken? So Stephen, of course, knows better. It was Stephen and what done the deed. Crawford soon loses himself in his own daydreams about Ignatius Gallagher, Pressman Extraordinaire. We've already talked about that for a full dissection of that. Just the episode before this in your feed. For Stephen, though, like Dermot has wisely pointed out, history is a nightmare from which he cannot awaken. And it continues to plague him even here. The office of an organization dedicated to documenting the present. Crawford's denunciation of some bloody nonsense combined with his twitching mouth conjures that vampire back into our young poet's mind. Scholar Zach Bowen described Stephen's retreat into his own mind as a, quote, satiric defense mechanism to protect himself against involvement with other people, living and dead. Also, as Dermot wisely pointed out, this poem, this vampire poem, is a reference to a poem from a book called Love Songs of Connacht by Douglas Hyde, who was himself from Connacht, uh, just up the road from where we live now. Mm, yeah you know, first president of Ireland. And the poem was entitled My Grief on the Sea. Of course, Love Songs of Connacht also plays a role in Ulysses' middle chapters in which it is the object of Haynes' desires as he goes about trying to get a copy. Anyway, in Hyde's version of My Grief on the Sea, the final stanza reads thus. And my love came from behind me. He came from the south, his breast to my bosom, his mouth to my mouth. Joyce is deliberately depicting Stephen as kind of punching up Hyde's poem, particularly the rhyme scheme. So we'll get into that. This will be a fun episode of Kelly tries to talk about poetry, a subject I look, I'm a prose girl. I don't know poetry, but I'll do my best. All of this all together, though, is a very subtle critique of what Joyce saw as some incredibly poor verse. Like, what does it mean he came from the South? He came from behind me. He came from the South. Is she facing North? Hmm. Would you say someone approached me from the South if they're coming up to embrace you and kiss you? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why is it necessary to know the cardinal direction of her love? Who, the love, who is a ghostly apparition embracing his still living lover from behind the veil of death? Hmm. Like, it's, 
The poem is translated from the Irish language. If you look at the original Irish, that he came from the South line was entirely added by Hyde. And he just added in purely for rhyme. There's kind of an A-B-A-B rhyme scheme oh, here. Okay. Well, actually, I would say A-B-C-B. Anyway, you get the idea. He, he put in the South bit to rhyme with the mouth bit. And Stephen is here as Joyce's avatar to search for a better rhyme because it's not good. Like, it's not good. No. With all due respect to President Hyde and the Irish language and the love songs of Connacht, this isn't great. There were a lot of poems in that book that can't all be bangers. Mm. So Stephen questions then, is the mouth south some way or the south a mouth? While Hyde's poem is never referenced directly here, that rhyme scream makes it Rhyme scream. The rhyme scheme makes it into Stephen's vampire poem, so that's why we're looking at it. This mouth south of the south of mouth. This is also a great bit of Joycean um, innuendo and a, like a dirty joke. Is the mouth south? So if the mouth moves south, so if my northern mouth moves to the southern part of another person's body, or is that south part a kind of mouth? Yeah. Do I need to continue? No. <laughs> okay. So beyond this really weird, dirty joke, the meaninglessness of the mouth south rhyme remains problematic. Mm-hmm. So notice how Stephen is trying to find a meaningful connection between mouth and south, but ultimately can't find one and continues to search for a different rhyme entirely. He wants a reason for his rhyme. Mm-hmm. Perhaps Stephen can find inspiration in Professor McHugh, who is sort of a lurking vampire in the office, who creeps up behind Stephen and says, Good day, Stephen, the professor said, coming to peer over their shoulders. Foot and mouth, are you turned? Right. Uh, So a sick Joycean burn on the professor, making him seem kind of vampiric. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not he approaches from the south is currently unknown to scholarship. So get on that, scholars. Fight about it. (laughs) Go to your conventions and fight. (laughs) The next The next line reads, rhymes, two men dress the same, looking the same, two by two. What do you think this means? Yeah, the the face you're making is is adequate. Stephen likens this clunky rhymes scheme to two men dress the same, looking the same, two by two. So the image of two men appearing so similarly call to mind the consubstantiality that has so unnerved Stephen in his earlier episodes. In Proteus, for instance, Stephen fretted over being made not begotten by the man with my voice and my eyes. Mm-hmm. Adding a few lines later, my consubstantial father's voice. So these, these two men dress the same, looking the same. Recalls one of Dermot's favorite topics, which is consubstantiality, which he's going to define for us right now. It's of God the Father and God the Son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're Separate, but one and the same. Mm-hmm. And Stephen worries that he and his father are like this. This is quantum physics for people in olden times. Sure. If we take Stephen and his father as the two men dressed the same, looking the same, two by two, we see that Stephen's voice is constrained by his inherited consubstantiality. Another cul-de-sac of wisdom, like all the men in the office who all know his father, who had been in the office earlier. To be free of his consubstantial father's voice, Stephen must kindle his own poetry with his own voice, his own breath. His own mouth. Having written himself into a corner, Stephen Rich reaches for one of the poetic greats for inspiration. So these Italian lines, which again, I've been in many reading groups that are kind of met with a, these are lines from Dante's Inferno, the book that I read in high school in English. But the first one goes, da, 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 da. La tua pace, da 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 da, che parlar ti piace, mentre che il vento come fa si tace. 
And that means... Mm. <laughs> it's easy to be thrown by this truncated intrusion written in fragments of Italian, whether you are a first-time reader of Ulysses or an old pro. The shortest explanation, again, is that this is fragments of Dante's Inferno. But that's not good enough. We have a podcast. we got to fill this time with something, right? Mm. Vento, that's a Starbucks drink, isn't it? Venti. Do you know what venti so means in, in Italian? Small. Oh, it means 20. Oh. It's a 20 ounce drink. I thought one of them means small, but it's really large in Starbucks world. I There's know. tall, which is the smallest size. Yeah. Grande, which is a medium. Because it was the large until they introduced a 20 ounce size, which is venti. Hmm. It's just 20. My Italian friend, mm-hmm. I think she doesn't like Starbucks, but she swears by McDonald's coffee. Go figure. I will say this for McDonald's coffee. I used to, in a more impoverished time, shelter in a McDonald's during a long, particularly long wait between buses. Mm -hmm. And they never charged me more than 20 cents for a cup of coffee. Yeah. So moving on. Joyce was greatly inspired by the poetry of Dante, quoted by his biographer Richard Ellman as saying, I love Dante as much as the Bible. He is my spiritual food. Joyce loved Dante so much, in fact, that early in his life, he asserted that the Divine Comedy was Europe's only true epic, though later in life he backtracked. Uh, Another Joyce quote via Elman. Dante tires one quickly. It's like looking at the sun. The most beautiful, most human traits are contained in the Odyssey. So he defected to the Odyssey at some point. You know, the Odyssey has better monsters. It does. Yeah. (laughs) Nonetheless, Dante's influence can be felt throughout Ulysses. Both Ulysses and the Divine Comedy deal with an Odyssean journey, themes of exile, and unflattering literary portraits of folks from the author's hometown, which I believe got Dante banished. I can't remember if he was banished before or after, but he was banished. Much higher risk has to be set for Dante. (laughs) (laughs) Like medieval Italy. medieval Joyce was exiled, but he exiled himself. No one kicked him out. Yeah, Lady Gregory wasn't coming to chop body parts off of him. We we love a a dramatic boy poet. What can Mm. I say? Scholars love to debate whether Bloom or Deadless is more analogous to the fictionalized Dante from the Divine Comedy. But that's a conversation for another day and probably not our podcast. Here in Aeolus, in an episode dedicated to journalism and prose, when young Daedalus needs a poetic escape hatch, he reaches for Dante. That's what's important to us right now. The scene from The Inferno quoted by Stephen is from Canto 5. So do you know what a canto is? They're like chapters of the poem? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, good. During which Dante meets the adulterers, Francesca and Paolo. So you you mentioned them earlier. Mm. The lovers were murdered by Francesca's husband when their affair was discovered and they were condemned to spend eternity buffeted by winds as punishment for their wanton ways. The wind motif here fits snugly into Aeolus, which is jam-packed with windy imagery. And I really like this as a nice hidden expression of that motif. If you know, you know. And now you know. And your Ulysses reading group's going to be so impressed with how smart you are. Tell them to listen to Blooms and Barnacles. Stephen is also tormented by infernal visions and corpse-chewing ghouls, both in Ulysses and a portrait of the artist as a young man. So the visions of hell found in the inferno fit his mindset pretty well. So let's get back to this Italian intrusion in Aeolus. What does the Italian mean in English? Lots of different, you know, translations of the Inferno over the years, but I went with the one in Gifford and Seidman's annotation because it's already lined up and I don't have to try to figure out. So in English it goes dot 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 thy peace dot 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 it pleases thee to speak while the wind as now is silent for us. 
So it's a truncated version of Dante's original, obviously, but the while silent is the wind bit is key. Uh, in the Inferno, the winds are quieted long enough for Dante to speak to Francesca and Paolo. In Aeolus, the winds, quote unquote, of the newsroom are quieted for Stephen as long as he's able to retreat into his mind. The complete original for any Dante completists or just curious people out there, Dermot is going to read now Dante-ly, or normally. <laughs> If the king of the universe were our friend, we would pray him for thy peace, seeing thou hast pity of our perverse misfortune. Of that which it pleases thee to speak and hear, we will speak and hear with you, while the wind as now is silent for us. Okay. Scholar Sarah Solom <clears throat> points out that the omissions are particularly striking in this Dante intrusion. Stephen focuses consciously on the rhyme, yes, but the way in which he has truncated the verse here specifically calls attention to the rhythm rather than the rhyme. In Solemn's view, Stephen is searching for a rhythm in addition to a rhyme for the vampire poem. There are a few clues in the words Stephen has chosen to preserve. So, for instance, la tua pace, which is Italian for thy peace or your peace. Pace, P-A-C-E, it looks like the English word pace. And Joyce, look, Joyce never met a pun or a double entendre he didn't love. See also the entirety of Finnegan's Wake. Pace could refer to the rhythm rather than the rhyme of Stephen's poem. Sullum quotes Joyce writing in his own so-called Paris notebook about the importance of poetic rhythm, which Dermot will read rhythmically. Rhythm seems to be the first or formal relation of part to part in any whole or of a whole to its part of parts. Parts constitute a whole as far as they have a common end. Rhythm important to Joyce. And thus, by extension, important to Stephen. The rhythm of Aeolus. Do you remember we talked about the uh, the binary rhythm of Aeolus? Hmm. We in one of our early yes. episodes about kind of background of Aeolus. Um, and this derives from the correspondent organ of this episode, which is the lungs. And what is the rhythm of the lungs? Oh, inhale, you. exhale. Yeah, 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 yeah. <sighs> Mm. Breathe in, breathe out. Mm. Solemn notes this binary rhythm throughout the episode, as have others, casting a sense of inhalation and exhalation over the action of the busy newsroom. So Eolus, like those two men dressed the same, mm. remember them, mm -hmm. is timed in twos, in, out, inflate, deflate, breathe in, breathe out. A great example appears early in the episode in the description of Rutledge's door. The door of Rutledge's office whispered, they always build one door opposite another for the winter. Way in, way out. So you see that that binary mm, rhythm. Yeah. It's two men right. looking alike, walking together. Mm -hmm. Okay. Richard Elman points out lots of these doubled up phrases in his book, Ulysses on the Liffey. There's a part that says thumping, thumping. There's a clank it, clank it. So this is this is the rhythmic flow of the episode. Mm -hmm. It's it's in twos. Yeah. But Stephen yearns to break free of this because it's a very simplistic rhythm. In the next section, the rhyme and rhythm intensify. Stephen says, He saw them three by three, approaching girls in green and rose and russet, entwining perlaer perso in mauve and purple. Solemn demonstrates how Stephen is now describing Dante's rhyme scheme in the form of these approaching girls, just as he has described his own rhyme scheme, mouth, south, in, out, up, down. 
inhale, exhale, right? It's too many. Buckle up for another translinguistic pun. Stephen proceeds the rhymes and rhythms sequence with the question, would anyone wish her mouth for a kiss? That's what he's writing in his poem, right? His mm. vampire's kiss poem. Mm-hmm. The Italian word for kiss is bacio, B-A-C-I-O. And there is a common Italian rhyme scheme called rima bachata, similar to an A-A-B-B rhyme scheme in English. Mm. This is all from Sarah Sullum. Read her article, which is linked uh, in our show notes. The A-A-B-B, not quite the same as... Hyde's poem, but it's just as basic. Since Rima Bachata consists of rhyming pairs, Solemn believes that the two men dressed the same, looking the same, two by two, are a metaphor for this rhyme scheme, which travels two by two, but comes across a bit static, uh, kind of samey, maybe even a little stale. However, this, this approaching brightly guarded trio of girls has kind of a different vibe. Their colors are a representation of Dante's love of synesthesia. What is synesthesia? Confusing sense perceptions. So mm-hmm. you can taste colors or mm-hmm. hear or taste sounds or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that they are in motion suggests a more dynamic rhyme scheme. This time, a rhyme of three. Sullum says this represents Dante's preference for the rhyme scheme of terza rima, meaning third rhyme, as it allows more flexibility and narrative possibilities. Basically, Dante's dynamic rhymes are a better inspiration for Stephen's poetic development than staid poetry like Hyde's. As with so much of Joyce's work, he believes that artists need to look to the continent rather than Irish sources Mm -hmm. in order to develop their art. The language in the description of the girls is similar to some of the descriptions also found elsewhere in the Divine Comedy, specifically in Canto 29 of Purgatorio. This canto describes an allegorical heavenly pageant that precedes the arrival of Dante's beloved Beatrice and the final book of the Divine Comedy, Paradiso. As we look at Purgatorio's Canto 29, we see some old friends. Dante describes, I saw two aged men unlike in raiment but like in bearing and venerable and grave they're not dressed the same here because they're unlike in raiment but they're still kind of traveling two by two very similar in other ways so these are the pair of men that steven's probably alluding to earlier like Mm -hmm. that two men thing didn't come out of nowhere Mm -hmm. for dante though these grim aged men represent the acts of apostle and the epistles of paul obviously obviously Uh, (laughs) Dante also describes a group of maidens arrayed in bright colors, representing the theological virtues and the four cardinal virtues. So if you want to read a more detailed breakdown of Canto 29's procession and really the rest of the Divine Comedy, I really recommend Columbia University's Digital Dante, um, which is what I use to prepare these notes. It's, It's so fantastic, very readable, easy to understand, just a lot more accessible than many, many other resources about this very complicated text. Uh, Anyway, Joyce's descriptions in this brief passage also serve as a bridge between Francesca in hell and the Virgin Mary in heaven. Now, more Italian. Quella pacifica oria fiamma, gold of oriflamme, dirimirar fe più ardenti. This is taken from Canto 31 of Paradiso, in which Dante describes a vision of heaven. Guided through heaven by St. Bernard, Dante witnesses, quote, that peaceful oriflamme shining over heaven and in the center, more than a thousand angels making festival with the Virgin Mary in their midst. Let's talk about oriflamme. Does that mean anything to you? I've heard that word before, but I cannot You might have heard it in the a book we both enjoyed, A Distant Mirror by Barbara Tuckman, mm-hmm. which deals a lot with the medieval French aristocracy noblemen. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
that's kind of where it comes. So this is the the oriflam. I just want you to describe this really quickly. It's a red flag with three little triangular things at the end. A yellow sun with like little spikes coming out of it and a, lots of yellow flames coming out. Uh, some from the sun itself and others going in a straight line toward mm-hmm. the, the triangular taper of the flag, like little laser beams. Mm-hmm. Yes, so this was the um, the standard of the medieval kings of France. The Virgin Mary's overwhelming beauty is being likened here to the oriflamme. Uh, so when the oriflamme was flown in battle, it meant that the French army would take no prisoners and show no mercy. Mm. Legend has it that it was given to the kings of France by the angel Gabriel and thus showed God's favor for the French. Therefore, an army fighting under this banner could never be defeated. The oriflamme was captured by the English at the Battle of Crecy and flown at for the final time at Agincourt. Crecy was a, a famous French defeat, mm. so it seems that God may have had other plans. Yep. That was in Tuckman's book, if I remember. Yes. Yeah. The Crecy is a, a, a like kind of the centerpiece of that book. Massive French cockle. Mm-hmm. And uh, fought under the banner of oriflamme. So mm-hmm. men make plans and God laughs. Uh, anyway, for our context here, I think Dante is calling attention to the sunburst at the center, symbolic of the radiance of the Blessed Virgin. In the second bit of Italian, di rimirare, fe più ardenti, Dante says that St. Bernard or St. Bernard, quote, made mine eyes more ardent to regaze, meaning that St. Bernard looked upon the Virgin so passionately that Dante couldn't resist looking at her just one more time. Hmm. Okay, what is Stephen going for here? <laughs> His recitation of Dante has proceeded from Francesca and Paolo's damnation through purgatory to the ineffable beauty of the mother of God in heaven. Some commentators, such as William York Tyndall, see this as representative of Stephen's own progress from the hell of his own personal history to a more heavenly state. Others, such as Robert Adam Day, see this as a continuation of the allegory about poetic rhyme and rhythm. Stephen's staid rhyme scheme is like those men walking two by two, as we've discussed, but those beautiful cavorting maidens and the blinding beauty of heaven are symbolic of Dante's transcendent verse to which Stephen aspires. Stephen's progress is not from a literal hell to heaven, but symbolic more so of how far he has to go as a writer still. So it'll be a while yet before his work is preserved in the Library of Alexandria. Hmm. Do you feel like you understand this any better? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. The next line reads, But I, old men, penitent, leaden-footed, under dark neath the night, mouth, south, womb, tomb. We're back to that. A, A, B, B, the the two men. Yeah, we're back in Purgatorio, Canto 29, at the Heavenly Procession. The line alluded to here reads, Then I saw four of lowly semblance, and behind all, an old man solitary, coming in a trance, with visage keen. Okay, so in Dantean allegory, the four men in this represent the minor epistles of the New Testament, and the lone old man is the Book of Revelation. The apocalyptic visions of Revelation could certainly be taken as leaden-footed under darkneath the night, but let's consider them allegorically. Stephen's clunky verse appears so grim and plodding compared to Dante's light, colorful waltz of words. We see again Dante's synesthesia as the dark color of night is used to confer a dour personality onto Stephen's poetry in contrast to the Moe's russet rose and green of Dante's. Solemn points out that 
But to understand the depth of this allegory, we must also consider Stephen's surroundings. He is now in the house of industrial printing, where literal leaden letters are pressed together systematically by machines. This mechanized production of writing stands in contrast to the light, playful dance of handwritten manuscript. I mean, if you look at Joyce's own manuscript, it's very hard to read, actually, um, which I think was due to his eye problems, but just his own flowy hand. This is particularly meaningful to Stephen, who sees the pen as his main defense against the world outside his head. Recall even modern-minded Bloom describes the printing press early on in the Aeolus as blunt, inhuman, unthinkingly violent, which Stephen, Stephen here, Stephen O'Connor, Stephen Deadless, Stephen Dermot, Dermot O'Connor, my husband will read. <laughs> Mind is breaking. <laughs> Machines smash a man to atoms if they got him caught, rule the world today. His machineries are pegging away to, like these, got out a hand, fermenting, working away tearing away. Solemn adds an additional layer of meaning to this passage, particularly the usage of leaden-footed. The leaden aspect is the typographical characters as mentioned above, heavy and standardized. Footed could refer to poetic foot, a term for the rhythm and pace of poetry. Stephen is vexed by his heavy-handed, ungraceful rhymes. South mouth, womb tomb. A callback to Proteus, a callback. But there's no life in this. It sucks. Tomb and womb is a notable juxtaposition of death and life. I kind of like that. I I find it very interesting that they are ordered tomb before womb Mm -hmm. because typically our lives run in the opposite direction. But the space between tomb and womb is not the experience of life, but the experiences of the bardo where you might be beset by hungry ghosts between your death and the next rebirth. That did not make it into the Divine Comedy. All right, we've got this last little bit here where Mr. O'Madden Burke kind of interjects. Speak up for yourself, Mr. O'Madden Burke said. I'm not really sure what he's referring to in the text here, but it kind of jars Stephen out of his little daydream. I find this little interjection from the world outside Stephen's mind particularly interesting, first of all, because Dante depicts Francesca in hell, apart from her adultery, as being there because she refuses to admit her sin. She won't confess. She blames Paolo and even the concept of love itself for her infidelity, anyone but herself. Her inability to admit to guilt and her rejection of agency over her sin make her unable to repent and thus she is eternally buffeted by the winds of hell. Stephen, if you recall, is bogged down by guilt because he refuses to pray for his dying mother as she requested. In real life, it was his mother asked him to do confession as well and he wouldn't do it. Mm. And this is because Stephen slash Joyce feared being dragged back into the world of Catholicism, unable to escape back into his Hyperborean existence afterwards. Agonbite of Inwit, mm. all that. Uh, Stephen is unwilling or unable to admit that what he did was, at the very least, deeply unkind to his mother. He cannot alleviate his guilt because, well, until he admits that he is guilty of this sin. When he is confronted by his mother's angry spirit in Circe, he finally speaks up for himself with a confident non-servium. You know what non-servium means? I refuse to serve. It's yeah. the devil in paradise lost. Yeah. It's, uh, that's the words of Lucifer to God in Paradise Lost. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Stephen chooses to reject the morality of a medieval mind like Dante's. It seems that Joyce made a similar artistic choice in his own life. Elman wrote that though Dante seems to have been Joyce's favorite author, Joyce himself favored a less retributive view of human relationships, setting aside this medieval view of heaven, hell, sin, punishment, and said, quote, relishing secular, disorderly, unquote, relationships that Dante 
Dante would have either ignored or punished. Because these people are being punished for adultery, which both Molly Bloom and Leopold Bloom are actively attempting to adulterate one mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. And we're meant to we're meant to love them, you know, and 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 at least empathize with them, if not love them. Mm-hmm. We we see all of their thoughts and their feelings laid out on the page, and they're they cut quite a sympathetic shape in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not just left to suffer and be tortured because they don't want to admit that what they did was wrong you know and the the wrongness of it is debatable definitely like infidelity is not the best thing you can do but it's definitely more complicated than just the binary that those two two men walking side by side if i recall francesca and paolo's situation was more complicated than she just was a big hoe who cheated on her husband Mm -hmm. i don't remember it well enough to say more than that but do you have any thoughts no Oh. Yeah. I'm 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 very uh, loyal, so you don't have to worry. Okay. <laughs> I figure it must be scary to hear your partner talking about. No, adultery is infid- great. I th- I did not say adultery is great. <laughs> I said that sometimes life is more complicated than uh, yeah, sin no, or no sin. They they yeah. both know what's going on. She, you know, yeah, yeah. People are complicated. Mm. So he's got the plum trees potted meat all over <sighs> his bed. He knows what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, he knows what's going on before the plum trees ever enters the situation. Yeah. Ladies love plum trees potted meat, guys. Just a little, <laughs> a little tip for you there. I wonder what it tasted like. I mean, it's it's like all the parts of the animal that are not even good enough for hot dogs. <laughs> so I imagine to make that taste edible, you would put a lot of salt in it. Yeah. So yeah, if you take the salt out, it's dog food. I have a whole blog post about plum trees potted meat. So, all right. Um, we have a little furry man requesting his own potted meat. <laughs> so maybe we should call it there for now. Yeah, that's your outro. All right. See you next time. <laughs> See you. Bye. Bye.